and I are still working the details of this out, but uh, I just have in my heart to really dig back into the Old Testament, particular Genesis, and um, everything that it says about men and masculinity. Um, and I guess, you know, we should say up front that masculinity is a virtue. Like, uh, being a male is not a virtue, but being what God has called men to be is a virtue. And virtues, if you know what a virtue is, is not something you do once. It's something you do habitually, and that it's something you reliably do. Um, so that's where we're going to be, and we'll probably, my aim is 25, maybe 30 minutes of talking, and then splitting up into the various congregations um, to sort of debrief around the topic. So where I want to go this morning is in, um, is in Genesis again. So if you have a Bible, turn there. And in particular, what I want to look at is the unique jobs given to Adam. Um, and just draw some implications out of what those jobs mean for us. Um, and I guess one thing I want to say up front as well is that, um, you know, we're not called to, I don't think we're supposed to sit around and be insecure about whether we're manly or not. Okay? I think I said last time that one of the most unmanly things you can do is obsess about how manly you are. Um, I think what we are called to do is find out what our duty is before God and carry out that duty. And as we do so faithfully and with God's help, whatever it is that makes us manly, that will come out. Now, we can fail as a man, but if we do, we shouldn't get preoccupied with, oh, trying to prove our masculinity. We should say, oh, how am I called to grow? How am I called to grow and be more faithful to this duty that God has given me? Does that make sense? It's sort of one side is insecurity, improving yourself. The other side is finding out what God wants you to do and doing it with him. Uh, and it's a very different approach to life. So I am not interested in obsessing about proving masculinity. I'm interested in what God calls us to as men, Amen. calls us to do and be as men. So the first thing that I want to point out just generally that I think I mentioned last week is starting in 26 of chapter 1. Then God say, said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So the first thing in general that man, God gives to mankind is dominion, uh, is rule. Um, you know, there's a tendency these days to see authority itself as somehow bad, right? Authority itself is somehow exploitative and abusive. But it's very clear in Scripture that authority obviously originates with God, and it's a good thing, all right? And it's for, we should forever mark this down, authority is for bringing out the thriving of what is ruled over, all right? God creates us. And his desire for us as God, as our right authority, is to make us fully whatever he intended us to be, is to make us thrive. That's good authority. All right? It's interested in the thriving of whatever it rules. Um, and so whether that's a king, whether that's an employer, whether that's a father, whatever it may be, dominion is for the thriving of whatever it rules. But then to get a little bit more into detail, because this is sort of the general picture for mankind. And by the way, I don't think that somehow the call to dominion is gone. 
after the fall or after the gospel comes. In fact, I think the call to dominion will continue in eternity. We're called to bring, to join God in bringing order and bringing out the potential of everything he made. Does that make sense? We, I mean, I think there will be fruitful and interesting work forever with God. So it's something that God always intends for us to be a part of. But then um, if we go to chapter 2 and we look in particular at the creation of mankind and what God uh, created man in particular to be, um, we'll start in verse 15 of chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. So two things there, to work it and to keep it. So God created this garden, and he put the man there to work it and to keep it. I want to comment on those two things. First of all, work. Again, note, this is before the fall. Okay, Work is not somehow a curse. Work is not somehow bad. Work is something that God created man for in the, man for in the first place. God works, and he wants mankind to work with him. So that's the first thing. He puts mankind there to work. And this is labor. This is, this is literally, in Adam's case, farming, if you will. But don't get distracted by farming in particular. All right? it's, it's labor in all kinds of things. All right? For Adam, clearly, it was manual labor. But I think this also, obviously, manual labor involves intellectual labor. Okay? It includes laboring with the mind. Um, and you, again, you shouldn't limit to the literal gardening. We garden in almost anything we do. We bring order. We get things out of the way that shouldn't be there. So things that should be there should, can be there and thrive. We plan. All of these things are a part of what Adam was called to do. I mean, imagine him seeing this whole garden and, and deciding how it should be, how it should unfold, where everything should be. There's all kinds of things involved in that work. And again, I think this is emblematic that you and I are called to be co-creators with God. He invites us to be a part of what he is in doing, he is doing in the world that is good. And there's so many ways that gets involved. But we need to have it in our heart that we are created for work. We are created for work, to work with God and to join him. What is the kingdom of God, after all, if not working with God, all right, in everything? Um, and by the way, just to, just to reiterate that this kind of work, again, we need to be kind of expansive in the way we think about it. Um, I was trying to think of something that we usually think of as not very manly. Is interior decorating manly? All right. Well, Bezalel, what did Bezalel do? Bezalel did the interior direct decorating, interior and exterior, on the temple. It included fabrics, it included, uh, it included all kinds of decorations, and it says specifically that the Spirit of God anointed him for that. Right? So we shouldn't stereotype what work means, and we should be really expansive about what work can possibly mean. All right? I, you know, none of us would probably say that Bezalel was not a manly. All right? Um, so it's important to keep in mind the broad category of work. This is work and keep. Keep is protection. All right? And this brings in, by the way, I, I don't think I quite noticed this until recently. The serpent shows up in chapter 3, but God says you've got to keep this in chapter 2. Does that make sense? 
It's as if God was anticipating that there was something to guard it or keep it against. Okay? So keeping is <coughs> protecting. All right? It is fighting. All right? And keep in mind there's different kinds of fighting. Um, Jesus never fought mano y mano, but Jesus was one of the greatest debaters that ever lived. Right? I mean, he engaged people publicly all the time and all the time defeated them, not in the name of his ego, but in the name of truth and in the name of mercy and in the name of the character of God. All right. Jesus was very clearly a fighter. So there's different kinds of fighting. Yes, there's fighting with hands. Yes, there's fighting with swords. There's fighting with guns. There's all kinds of fighting, but it's always in the name of protection, guarding the good things that God has made. All right. And this was also a very important um, task for Adam. And again, we get that prelude or that preview that, watch out, Adam. There's going to be some things you need to guard the garden against. And in particular in Scripture, um, that fighting, that keeping, that guarding is always in the name of the weak. Right? It's always in the name of protection. Um, it's, always, it's never really in the name of conquest as such. It's very interesting God tells Israel, these are your borders. Don't conquer your neighbors. Okay, don't expand beyond them. These are your borders, all right? They have to take the promised land that God has given them, but they're not to conquer their neighbors. So work and protection. Um, and those, I mean, I'm gonna, there's a few more that I want to elaborate on, but if you spend time thinking about those, I am created to be a part of what God is doing to bring out the order in the world, and that involves work, and that is in all kinds of things. There's all kinds of ways this comes to pass. And I am created to protect. All right? What am I called to protect? Who am I called to protect? Um, we, we are all called to engage in that in some way, shape, or form. And then um, in verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, stop there. All right. He put him there for a purpose. He gave him this purpose. And then it says very clearly, the Lord God commanded man. And I guess what I would say about this is we are to stand before we're to be responsive to the commandments of God. Right. Uh, this was Adam's. He, he had a vocation and he had a relationship with God that he was called to walk in trusting obedience toward. Now, among other things, I think the tree of the knowledge... So he goes on to say, sorry, what he commands him. You may eat of every tree of the garden, but, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God put limits on him. And Adam is called to walk in trusting relationship with God uh, and to, to guard those limits that God gives him. Now, I think... Uh, that Adam and Eve were created innocent. But innocent is not the same thing as mature. Does everybody understand the difference? All right, innocent is he had, no, he had done no wrong. Mature, God, let me put it this way, God couldn't create him mature. Okay, because Adam could only become mature by long obedience in the same direction. Does everybody understand that difference? I think it's a key difference. Okay? Innocent is not mature. A baby is innocent. A baby is not mature. Okay, they're different kinds of goodness. And maturity would have come about, honestly, knowledge 
would have come about for Adam through trusting relationship with God over time. All right, and this is what this is what Adam turned down. So again, this 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 part about Adam that he had, he stood in trusting relationship with God. He stood in a submissive relationship to God's commands. All right? This was another key component of who Adam was called to be. Um, and then the last one that I'll mention. So we've mentioned dominion. We've mentioned work. We've mentioned protection. We've mentioned standing under the commandments of God. Um, this is uh, the naming. So verse 19 Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. So I've pointed this out before, but there's so much more here than meets the eye. Okay, If you consider what was involved with Adam naming the Um, Adam would have had to really pay attention. Adam would have had to distinguish. I mean, think about, we we still uh, add taxonomic categories to all the animals that we come to understand. We're constantly discovering new species. It's a complex task. It involves attention. But more than that, I believe it involved appreciation of what God made. Okay? God made everything, and after he made it every day, what's he say? It is good. All right? Adam was called to see what God has made, to distinguish, to notice the differences, and to appreciate those things. All right? To appreciate the uniqueness of everything God made. And so I think in this naming, there, it involves studying. It involves appreciating. It involves describing. It involves celebrating. All right? And I would suggest that in Adam's naming is all art and all science together. Does that make sense? That's what a scientist does, okay? Uh, And that's what an artist does. What an artist does with creation is not say, I'm making something better than God, or this is an exact replication of God, but I want you to notice what God has made, and my art is meant to draw your attention to it. And a scientist comes to understand the way God puts something together, the way it works. But all of that falls under, the, uh, falls under the category of naming. Does that make sense? We do that in all kinds of areas of our lives. Okay? We do that with one another. Uh, we do that with all the things that God has created. So this naming, I would suggest, touches far more than we think of. It's not just, that's an octopus, this is an art park. <laughs> all right. Now, I want to... So just that general picture, I would suggest that if you take some time to think about all of this, uh, I am called to be a part of bringing God's rule over all of creation. I am called to work. Work is a good thing. Uh, And I am called to some kind of fruitful labor. I'm called to protect. What am I called to protect? How am I called to protect it? Uh, I am created to stand joyfully and willfully under the commandments of God. And I'm called to name. I'm called to, uh, to bring this noticing, appreciating order to everything. Um, now, I think we all, I, I mentioned last week uh, or a month ago that, um, you know, if you want to look for the real differences between men and women, you look where it matters most, and that's usually money, right? 
when it comes down to money. So the best example is insurance premiums. All right, insurance premiums are not in, interested in ideology. They're not interested in the culture war. They're just interested in the bottom line, which is the dollar. And there's a reason young men's driving insurance premiums are higher. Young men take risks. Young men like danger. Young men, sometimes that means they do stupid things. But that's also the virtue, or it can be, a virtue of masculinity. Does that make sense? Now, let me elaborate on it just a little bit. Think about all of the stereotypical evil masculine things. Okay? Drug dealers. All right? That's a pretty exploitative, selfish, evil thing, and it's usually only males that do this. Well, what's the positive side of that? Entrepreneurs. Risk-takers. They create something new. There's a virtue in there. When it's perverted toward the self, well, it turns into the drug dealer. But when it's, it's oriented towards those categories, it can be something good. Does that make sense? Um, violent criminals. Okay, it's men that perpetrate the vast majority of violent crimes. That's awful. But when you turn that in a good direction, that means winning World War II. That means defending your home, defending the weak, right? It's the same quality, aggressive violence, but it's directed under God's order. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think you could do this with all of these. Uh, sex criminals are predominantly men. Well, how does that get ordered right? Well, being a father, being a husband, right? Channeling that, that drive in the direction that God created it to be driven. Right? Creating families, bringing forth the future. Um, I was, uh, we were just talking about Jackass. I don't know how many people know what Jackass was. This was a TV show on MTV where, you know, 20-something men would be like, hey, I wonder if we could go down this hill in San Francisco in a shopping cart. What would happen? And then they would do it and film it. And invariably, there were stupid injuries. Okay? They would do things like, let's uh, put super glue in my hand and put it on this hairy guy's chest and leave it there until, you know, really dumb stuff. All right? That's the lowest common denominator. What's the highest common denominator? <laughs> Scientists and explorers. Right? I was just reading about Anton Leeuwenhoek. Everybody know who Anton Leeuwenhoek is? What'd he do? He, he pioneered the microscope. He also discovered germs. All right, and one day he decided, I'm going to put water in pepper and just leave it there for a couple days and then look at it under a microscope. Okay, that's a very male thing to do. So I'm just going to do something strange and unusual and see what happens. Okay, there's a virtue to that. And probably most inventions come from that kind of, I'm going to try this out, see what happens. Okay, does that make sense? So you take these masculine qualities, you put them in submission to what God has said. Bring order, work, protect, um, name things. Those are very, very good things. So if I could summarize again, if I, and I like this way of putting it. Men are created by God with the duty of provision, protection, and procreation. Okay? Provision, protection, procreation. Provision means you produce more than you consume. And by the way, that, 
you can put that in the category of money, you can put that in the category of food, you can put that in the category of, of what you say with your words. But men are called to be people who make more than they consume so that they can share that with other people. And again, don't limit that just to money. All right, what do you make? And do you have more than enough so that you can give to others? Whether it's literal children or not, right? I mean, Paul makes it clear. Hey, you guys who stole, stop stealing. Work so you have something to give. All right? So provision. Protection. Sacrifice yourself to protect others from harm. All right? And there's all kinds of harm. And there's all kinds of sacrifice. Sometimes it's not, sometimes it's not literal blood. Sometimes it's your comfort. Sometimes it's your ego. Right? But it is giving of yourself to protect others from harm. And then procreation. Give yourself, give of your time, money, to bring forth new life. Now, again, I want to emphasize in all three of those, you don't have to be a literal father to bring forth new life. You don't have to be a literal husband to protect God's bride. Right? One of the greatest defenders of God's bride was Paul, and he was never married. All right, but he put his life on the line to protect God's bride. So keep that in mind. So what I want to look at here, and then five minutes, and then I'll be done. So is that helpful? I mean, I just, just go, we go back again and again to just the beginning, before the fall, what God has called us to, how man, God has made men unique, um, and live into those things. Submit to those things and give yourself to those things. I want to look, though, how that went wrong with Adam in the fall. And this is maybe just one angle of how it went wrong, but I want to look at that angle. Um, and it has to do with what happened. Why did Adam do what he did? Um, so first of all, I should point out that God says it's not good for man to be alone. Notice, though, that before any of this happen, Adam, at happens, Adam has his relationship with God Adam has his vocation. Before the woman is added into his life, he knows God, he knows what he's called to, he knows his task, and he's given to it. And God says it is not good for man to be alone because he has to have help. Okay, he needs help to carry out this task. He cannot carry out the task that God has given him without a helper. And so God gives a woman as the helper. But again, his mission is clear first. So what I want to look at is in chapter 3, and this is something we point out all the time, but I just want to spend a little time thinking about it and see how this theme plays out in Genesis. Um, so very quickly, we have the dialogue with Satan and with Eve, and um, I'll just pick up in verse 6 of chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That's what I want to look at. All right? It's a remarkable reveal in the story. You know, because at first you think, oh, the serpent's there with Eve, and Adam's off somewhere else working on the cherry trees. But then you find out that Adam has been a bystander to this entire conversation. All right? And he's done nothing about it. And that's the remarkable thing. 
He's done nothing about this conversation. At some point, he should have said, whoa, 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 whoa. Hun, stop talking. Come with me. And he should have gone back and killed the serpent. All right? He should have realized, ah, this is what I meant to protect against. And uh, my wife is listening to this thing, and I can't let that happen. I need to stop this. All right? And so people, for generations, Christians have for centuries said, why didn't Adam stop this? And uh, in, in just thinking about this, I discovered a new word. Anybody ever heard the word uxorious? <laughs> uxorious. It's a great word. U-X-O-R-I-O-U-S. Okay? It means... Listening to your wife too much. Okay? And I want you to think about, I want you to just think about this, possibly what this means for Adam. I'm assuming that it means Adam cares more about making his wife upset than making God upset. He cares more about what he gets from his wife maybe what that does for him than he does about what is best for her. Does that make sense? Now, I want to be careful because I want to talk for a few minutes about not listening to your wife. All right? And we need to qualify that, but we don't want to qualify it to death. All right? It's a very important theme that Genesis opens up. Okay? So notice what happens when God shows up and talks to Adam. He says, verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Okay, by implication, instead of my voice. Right? Instead of what I said. So Adam really goofed. And by the way, you know, the responsibility is ultimately laid at the feet of Adam. The buck stops with him. Because you listen to the voice of your wife, these things have happened. Everybody's called on the carpet, but I believe Adam is called on the carpet the most. And so he didn't do his job. He failed as a protector because he listened to the voice of his wife for, who knows, all kinds of complex reasons. Okay? But the bottom line is he listened to her voice. Now I want to go forward because Genesis continues this theme, and you don't always notice it if you're not paying attention to this idea. So in the Hebrew, it's listen to the voice. You listen to the voice. Obviously, this is more than just the sound waves hitting your ear. It's going with what she said. In Genesis chapter 16, we have an interesting episode. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. Okay? Now, I imagine there was all kinds of social pressure, no children. I imagine there was a bit of a grind in, April, in Sarah, Sarai's, uh, you know, this is probably a long, well, I don't have any children. What are you going to do about it, Abraham? You know, one or the other, I think it's Jacob. Am I God? All right, I didn't close your womb. There's probably a lot of tension in here. And maybe Abraham just wanted peace. I don't know. We could speculate in all kinds of ways. But the bottom line is he listened to the voice of his wife and it wasn't what God had in mind. All right, does this make sense? Abraham was called, like Adam, 
to understand what he was called to, what his duties were, what God was doing and how he was participating with God, and to know when something was going against that. And in this case, he didn't know it, and it led to a lot of problems. But again, I said, I want to make sure that you understand this is, uh, it's a little more complex than just don't listen to your wife, full stop. Okay? Because we get an interesting story a little bit later on, and it also has to do with the child that came from Hagar. So in Genesis 18, um, Sarah, again, now she's upset about the child. Remember, I just love the story because they had the child, and then Hagar is, you know, treating her, her uh, treating Sarah badly, and Sarah says to Abraham, "This is all your fault." Okay, it's great. It's, it's all, it, it is his fault, okay? At any rate, later on, she's concerned and she wants to send Hagar away. Um, let's see. Oh, I have the wrong reference. Uh, chapter 18, let me read this and see if it comes up. Verse, chapter 18, verse 9. They said to him, where is Sarah your, Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door of the tent. That's not the reference. All right, sorry. You'll have to look it up. Uh, let me just tell you the content of the reference. Later on, when Sarah wants to send Hagar away, everybody remember this? Abraham's upset because Ishmael's his son. God says, listen to the voice of your wife. All right. So in that case, God says, listen to the voice of your wife. But what's the key determinant in all this? Abraham's relationship with God. Right. He's not just blindly listening to his wife or blindly not listening to his wife. He's relating to God and whether to listen to his wife or not. Does this make sense? All right. He has to be discerning. Um, one last uh, place in the New Test or in the Old Testament in Genesis that mentions this theme of listening to the voice. Uh, it comes up in 27 because I think as men, as fathers, we have to call our sons away from mommy. Do everybody know what I mean? This is part of what it means to help young men grow up. They have to be called away from being mother. They have to honor their mother. <coughs> Right, but they have to be called into the company of men and called to, to manly tasks. But I'm going to look at something in Genesis 27 that I think continues this theme that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.17. Um, and it is when um, in uh, chapter 27, let me start in verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you, before the, uh, bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Okay, what is, he, she says literally, listen to my voice. And what does she have him do? This whole scheme of deception. All right? So let me say it this way. Uh, Adam was not called to listen to the voice of his wife in an undiscriminating way. Uh, I think we can say with confidence Jacob shouldn't have listened to his mother. God used it for good, all right? But I don't think he should have listened to his mother, all right? The point is, 
men, young men, are called to be formed in learning their calling as men. Learning the commandments of God. Learning to relate to God and know his voice and know when they should listen to the voice of a wife. Does that make sense? So the qualification is that the New Testament says, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. All right? That doesn't mean being an ogre and saying, well, I'm never listening to you. It means knowing how to listen discerningly, wisely, and well. All right? And Adam went wrong when he listened to his wife. And Adam went right when he began to learn from God how to listen or when to listen. Does this, does this thing make, make sense? All right, it's a very key theme. And I, you know, I can add to it in Proverbs. What does it say? The father and the mother say and in several different ways, my son, listen to my voice. Okay? Part of it is learning to know what voices to listen to. Learning from God how to understand what voices to listen to. All right. Any thoughts on that before we split up? I know I've said a lot. Ben, can you run with that? Is that good? Any yeah. thoughts? You are, I, my, my mind went straight to Proverbs. The woman following is loud. Yeah. And, and the, the adulteress is, has smooth words. You know, there's just so many things in there. Um, men are, are always tempted to listen to the woman. And you think of, you know, you think of Odysseus and the siren. You know, it's just shut your ears, you know. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Here, it, it's, it's something that's a universal And again, I think where we need to put the pressure on for us is as men, do we, for the sake of peace, sometimes not put put a stop to something we should put a stop to in our home. And again, it's costly in our relationship with our wives. And I think we often just shut up rather than deal with the the consequences. Uh, Young men are called to out of the company of women into the company of men. And that's a harder company. It's much easier to be with mommy, right? Um, all right, is that good? Anybody else got a comment so we can, we can run with a conversation around this? Anybody? Five, four, three. All right. Um, I guess TCF will go in the cave here if that's our, the Billy's Sanctum Sanctorum. Is that open, you know? Yeah, it should be. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. ECF. JCF, where are they going? Can you lead a convo with? I think we might. I think we can put it on the table. Do it together? No, I mean ECF will, will sit around the table. Oh wait, no, you guys have more.